Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit OutreachChurch.net for downloads and service information. I was driving with my wife the other day down the road and I was talking to her and, and I said, man, can you believe that this is our life? And our kids are in the back seat, you know, and they're, they're playing and talking and they're having fun and, and me and her are getting ready to go somewhere and do something together. And, and I was just thinking about how blessed we are. And, and I, I really was sitting there overwhelmed that, that God loves me and is so good to me and, and his kindness towards me. And I, I was just kind of looking at my life in general from, from start to finish and, you know, where I'm at right now anyways. And, and, thinking about where he's taken me from and what he's taken me out of and where he's brought me to and what he's placed me into. And, and I just couldn't help but be overwhelmed by this and think, man, this is my life. I get to live this life. I get to be your husband. I get to be their father. I get to, to, to pastor a church and be part of an amazing community of believers. And I get to have fellowship with the living God and his spirit actually lives inside of me. And he's promised that, he, that he'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. That everything that I need will be, will be taken care of and provided for because of His riches and, and His kindness and, and, and all these things. And I just found myself overwhelmed and the only response was that tears are flowing down my face and I'm just saying thank you. And I realized that to me that's the essence of worship is that we're so aware of what God's done for us and who He's been in our lives that we can't help but to respond with worship with thank you, with giving our lives and, and giving of ourselves to Him. And, and so um, I don't think that's just for a few people. I don't think that God intends for anybody to have a life that they can't at some point sit there and look at what He's done for them and who He's been for them and what He's promised and be thankful. I don't believe that's just for a select few. I don't think that's just for pastors or just for worship leaders or just for you know rich people or, or whatever the case may be, people that we would look to and say, well, yeah, but their life. Because the truth of the matter is, is that my life looks a lot like your life in the natural. My joy has nothing to do with the fact that I haven't suffered loss, that I haven't had things that hurt me, that I haven't had things that went wrong, that didn't go my way. My joy has nothing to do with that. If that was the case and my joy was dependent on that, then I'd probably have reason to be depressed every single day. It has to do with this, that in spite of all that, in spite of everything that's been done, in spite of everything that I've done, He loves me, He calls me His Son. And He says that I am who He says that I am. And so no matter where you are right now, it doesn't matter. It's not that one day you have to delay your joy. You don't have to say, well, one day when this, well, well, once this or once this is over, don't put off enjoying the goodness of God and who He created you to be until one day. Because I promise you that if you do that, one day will never come. There will be things that come into your life and there will be opportunities for you to be discouraged and there will be seasons of busyness, there will be times of busyness, there will be times of trial, there will be times of hardship. The Bible promises that they're coming our way, that don't be surprised when you face trial, when you face tribulation. In this world, you have tribulation, but take heart for I've overcome the world. Jesus promised that that stuff was coming, but he also promised that there was a way that we could live in him that was above the storm, that was above the circumstance, that was above the trial, above the tribulation. And don't delay your happiness and your ability to enjoy God for one day when. Because what happens is you'll just keep moving that line as new things come into your life. 
And if all it takes is people doing things to you to, to hurt you or, or people coming against you, if you're touchy, if you're sensitive, and all it takes is somebody treating you badly to take your eyes off of who God called you to be and to affect that, the enemy will make sure that people keep coming into your life and make sure that you keep getting touched, you keep getting pushed, you keep getting wronged, you keep getting hurt. Because if he can get you to live below where God called you to live, he can't change who you are, but he can certainly, if you let him, change your ability to believe that you are who God said you are. And that's why we have to live by faith and not by sight. That's why you have to decide for yourself that you are who God said that you are because of all that he said for you, because of his spirit within you, because of the life he's promised, because of the life that he gave us his very son for you to live. And live from that place, not for that place. Never get up in the morning hoping that you do enough to make God happy. Get up in the morning and realize that Jesus did enough that God's pleasure is towards you forever. And then live from that place rather than living for that place. There's no checklist in Christianity. We don't go to bed at night and make sure we did enough to wake up the next morning and be his son, be his daughter. We go to bed every night confident that we are his son, that we are his daughter, that he does love us because of everything that Jesus did and because of who we are in Christ. Because on your own, I promise you, the score score sheet is pretty bad. I don't care how good of a person you are. On your own, standing on your own works and your own merit before God, you failed. That's why Jesus died, so that you could stand on his works and on his merit, become joint heirs. I just, and and I'm saying that, and and part of it is that I've been thinking, uh, two days ago, there was a death in my wife's family, Um, her cousin's husband, they just celebrated their one year anniversary, was driving, uh, lost control of his vehicle, um, crashed, and was killed. And and as I sat there thinking about what it would be like to be his wife and, and, and to, you know, have your whole life in front of you, right? Like your whole life when you're 20 years old, 21 years old, the future is in front of you and, 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 and you have your whole life and you're going to live forever when you're that age. And you just, you can't even imagine, 35 seems so old and, and you just can't even imagine that life one day is going to end and then all of a sudden you wake up one day and everything's changed and I was thinking, man, what, it, what would it be like to wake up one morning and realize that the one person that you were in love with that you'd given your life to in this earth was now gone like that? And what would be the thing that would anchor you so that you didn't just fall apart and go to pieces? And not that there's anything wrong with for a little while falling apart and going to pieces because we're not robots when it hurts and there's pain and things happen, right? But the, but the point is there has to be something greater than something here on earth that anchors our soul and says, it doesn't matter what happens, I'm okay. That my life and my ability to be okay isn't just on everybody else's ability to do the right thing around me, on everybody else's ability to perform right, on the world's ability to make me happy or to do the things that I want them to do because I promise you the world is set up in opposition to you. And there's things coming against you. And if there's not something that's so much deeper than what we see around us that anchors our soul and says, it doesn't matter, come what will, I'm okay because He said I am. And because the promises that I have are so much greater than just temporal things that are here today and gone tomorrow. If we could find that place where we live from a place of joy rather than searching for it, how much would our lives change? If we woke up every day realizing that we have been given the joy of the Lord, that that there's joy in our salvation, that what He did for us, He did so that we would have a joy that was unshakable, a peace that was never-ending, that passes understanding. It passes understanding because you can't point to something happening in the natural always and say, this is why I have peace. 
You can't give a logical answer when people say, why are you so peaceful when everything's going on around you? Because it passes understanding. It's not natural. It's not normal. It's not worldly. It's not, it's not what the world is used to. And you say, you know what? The, the truth of the matter is, is because my peace has nothing to do with all these things. My joy has nothing to do with all these things. They can add to my joy, but they can't steal it. That's one of the amazing things about being in Christ is that people around you and the love of others and people doing things for you and and affirming you and all that, they can add to your joy. It can certainly do that, but it can't take your joy because it's not the source. He is. And so... um, In, in preparing for this week's message, it's just, it's a huge message. And I promise you we're not going to get to touch on everything that this covers. In fact, we're going to come back to some of this stuff in a little bit when we get done with this, um, with the covenant series that we're on. But we talked last week uh, about, we began to talk about the exchange of belts and how in the covenant that man would make that, that you would exchange belts which held your armor, which held your sword. And, and in doing so, what you were saying is uh, my, my, your enemies will be my enemies, my enemies, your enemies. Those whom you love, I will love. And those whom you would protect, I will protect. And it was an exchange. And it was saying, even if it costs me my life, I will promise and I pledge to defend and honor and fight for you against those who would come against you and to protect those whom you love and you would protect. It was a complete exchange. It wasn't that you said, well, well, just for you, because it went beyond just the person and it went down into the people that they were in covenant with, that they were in relationship with. And so all of their enemies became your enemies and all of their allies became your allies and vice versa. And we talked about how God would, would in the old covenant, promise to fight for the people. And even though he promised that he would drive them out, it was always at the, his command that they would go in and drive him out. And how it was a co-laboring with God. It wasn't as if God came and just said, okay, okay, stand back and I'm going to go in and I'm going to drive the people out and then you go in and take the land. He said, I'm going to go ahead and drive them out, but you have to come in with me and drive them out. I am fighting them and I am destroying them. Now you go and fight them and you destroy them because it's always a co-labor with God. It's always I am doing, so you're going to do. It's never him saying, okay, go fight the battle. We'll see who wins. If it's you, then good. I'll come in and bless you. But it also wasn't him saying, I'm going to go in and do everything. You just stand back and watch. They actually had to fight. We talked about how David understood this covenant and how he understood that when, when Goliath came against the armies of Israel, he was coming against the one who the armies of Israel were in covenant with. Because when he talked to Goliath, he said, you've come against the God of the army of Israel. And for him, he understood covenant to the point that if somebody came against the army of Israel, they were coming against the God of the army of Israel because he was in covenant with them. And that was what gave David the strength and the courage to understand that he could go down and fight and defeat the enemy. Because he knew that anybody who had set themselves as an enemy of God had become an enemy of his. And that if God was on his side, he had a better covenant than whoever he was fighting. And the giant didn't stand a chance. So that's in the Old Testament. Remember in the Old Testament, God drives the people out of the place where they're going to live. So he removes the enemy. He removes the presence of the enemy from the land that they live in so that they can go in now and live in and possess the land, right? But in the New Covenant, God drives the enemy out of us. It's no longer that God removes the enemy from our presence so that we can go in and live the life that He desires for us to live. Now God removes the enemy from within us so that now we are surrounded by the enemy still, but there's something different inside of us. There's a change inside of us and we're actually able to live in the presence of the enemy but not be changed by it, but instead change the world around us. 
See, God has no interest in, for the rest of your life, being your cleanup guy that runs ahead of you and makes sure that any little problem, any little temptation, any little thing that would come, that, that it's removed out of the way so that as you walk in this world, it's effortless. If he was to do that, then why do you need faith to walk by? It wouldn't take any amount of faith at all. It would just take simply walking as God went ahead of you and swept the road clean and made sure that there was no enemy, no attack, no trial. The problem with that is as we read the New Testament, we see over and over again a promise that there will be trial, there will be tribulation, there will be attack. The difference is, is now, rather than God having to drive away the enemy so that we're able to live, God drives the enemy outside of us and replaces that with His Spirit so that we're able to live in the world but not be of the world. There's no interest in you and I telling a Waco, Texas and separating ourselves completely from the world and having nothing to do with the world. The battlefield where the battle takes place is in the world. And if we remove ourselves from it, then who fights the enemy in the world? He had no intention of you just simply fighting the rest of your life, the enemy out of your own life and out of the other believers around you. He intended and had every intention that you would go into the world and take the fight to the enemy. That's why he gave you armor. That's why he gave you a weapon. It says we battle not against flesh and blood, not we battle not. Right? For so many of us, sometimes we wish the verse would just end there and it would say we battle not. But that's just not the case. So 2 Corinthians 10. How are you guys doing this morning? Everybody okay? Yeah? You guys doing alright? It's our family Sunday, so all the kids are in church with us. Is anybody hot in here? No? Yeah, you guys are? Okay. Let me fix that for you. One second. We're so professional here. As you can see, it's just a smooth, polished machine. They say that you should never see the back of of a pastor, right? They say that once the pastor gets on stage, nobody should ever see his back. You should always be facing forward to the congregation. See, the halo is diminishing now because I really... I'm sorry. I didn't get an etiquette for that. Um, If you're hot, I'll turn the AC down for you. Um, So anyways... 2 Corinthians 10.3, as long as everybody's okay, we're going to turn there, and um, and we have so much scripture to go through. I'm going to try to get through all of this this week. If not, you know, if we can't cover this all in the two and a half hours ahead of us, then we'll come back next, we'll come back next week. I'm just kidding. The new people are like, two and a half hours. 2 Corinthians 10.3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can open up a book that we can find on the shelf in a store, and it's you, God. It's your word, and it speaks to us. That it's alive, that as we read from your word, that you speak, and your spirit is bringing revelation and opening our eyes to truth. Holy Spirit, I just ask that right now you would bring peace to every mind in this room. That no matter what we walk through the door thinking about with our minds on a million things or racing or, or thinking about things or troubled, God, that right now, Holy Spirit, you would bring peace to every mind here. That you would bring a calm to every mind. That our ears would be open to hear. That we would have the mind of Christ as the Word says we do. That we would be able to understand your Word, God. That it would go into our hearts and that it would bring forth fruit that we would be transformed more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, from glory to glory. That today we look more like Jesus than yesterday, and that tomorrow we'll look more like Him than we did today.
because we're constantly being transformed and renewed and changed into the image of your Son. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So we walk in the flesh. In other words, we're we're still in this world and you still have a fleshly body. When you got born again, your fleshly body didn't just disappear and suddenly you became this translucent being that looks something like an angel with hair of gold and fiery eyes and all those things. You still look like you. You got born again, you became a new creation, but guess what? If you were short when you got born again, you're still short. Right? If you were tall, I know, if you were tall when you got born again, you're probably still tall. Your body looks very similar. Even though people might see you and say, what's different about you? It has nothing to do with your physical appearance outside of the fact that there's a joy inside of you that if you contain on the inside, it'll start to show on the outside. But you still have a body of flesh. You still need to eat food except when God calls you to fast and you still need to drink water. You still use the bathroom. You still do all those things that you did, right? Because you're still in the flesh until we get this this new glorified body and we get transformed we still walk around in a body of flesh and blood right so we're in the world but we're not of the world right we're not transported physically to a different place god doesn't say okay now that you're born again move to this state because that's where the christians go or move to this country because that's where the christians go in fact i think god has every intention that when you become born again you stay where you are and you bring the kingdom of heaven to bear on the place where he's placed you That you don't get born again and hit the ejector seat and now take yourself out of the work environment that you were in before unless it's an ungodly work environment that's leading you to sin. But if you're in a work environment teaching at a school, you don't get born again and now say, okay, i got to leave this school and I have to teach at a Christian school because... You know, I just can't be in this secular place. I believe God would have you go back to the school and bring the kingdom of heaven to that school. Because if every Christian becomes born again and then leaves the place where they were, what hope do the people who are there have? of hearing the gospel and seeing the gospel lived out in front of them by someone who's in love with Jesus and filled with His Holy Spirit. It's not about getting you out of the world. It's about getting the world out of you. So that now when you go into the world, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. You can change the world and not be changed by the world. And so, so he has no intention, like I said, of just being our cleanup crew and, and, you know, running ahead of us and making sure that everything that would come against us is moved out of the way. And, and John seventeen three, he said, but now I come to you and these things that I speak in the world, these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy may be made full in themselves. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as though I am not of the world. I do not ask you take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. When Jesus came into the world, He didn't go and strictly find people who were religious people, who were good people, and spend His time with all of those people and separate Himself from the ones that the world called the sinners that the world looked down on. In fact, He said, I came not for the well, for the well need no doctor. I came for the sick. I came for the ones who don't know that they're sick, for the ones who need a Savior, for the ones who aren't good people, as the world would call them. I didn't come so that I could find the people that were the best of the best, that were the holiest of the holy, and we could have a private little club, and me and them would hang out and just be holy around each other. I came and I called the people that the world looked down upon, and I said, follow me and I'll give you everlasting life. 
And Jesus says, as you've sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. In other words, I send them into the world containing the Holy Spirit that you sent me into the world with, with the same exact idea that the world would be changed by them, not them be changed by the world. See, Jesus came and He lived inside of the same system and community that everybody else lived inside of. Why? Because He was giving us an example of what it looks like to follow God and what it looks like to be sent into the world to see the world change through His life. And so if Jesus would have done it a different way, if Jesus would have came and made Himself a select little club and said, we're the holy ones and you guys stay out there and they would have put gates around the city, then we would do the same thing. But God never, Jesus never did that. He came here and He was actually ridiculed and criticized by people because He spent a lot of time with the people who the world looked down on. Because He had every intention of bringing the hope of salvation to every person in the world. Not just those who were good. Good. So he says, the world has hated them because they're not of the world. Same reason they hated Jesus. Jesus said, if, they would have, if I would have been of them, they would have loved me. In other words, if I would have came and lived the life they expected me to live, then I would have looked like what they expected me to look like. The world would have loved me. But because I'm not like the world, because I'm not of this world, the world hates me. Because when you live a life that is holy and righteous and pure in front of people, they will hate you for it because they see an example that's better than the life that they're living and they understand that it's possible to live differently. And if it's possible to live differently, then they have to either change their lives or they have to find a reason to hate you and discredit you. They couldn't see the example that Jesus lived of not violating the law and still loving people and, not, and it not offend them because they were unwilling to change their own lives so they sought to discredit Him and they hated Him because of the example that He set. Don't be surprised when you live in the world and you live the life that God's called you to live and you're hated for it. In fact, I think Jesus knew full well that you would be and that's why He said this. Don't worry, if they hate you, it's because they hated me first. It's because I set the example. It's because I came and the way that I lived caused the world to hate me. Don't think that you've found a better way of living where you can represent the kingdom of heaven inside of the kingdom of this world and not be hated for it. In fact, expect it. That way when it comes, you're not surprised. You're not hurt. You don't run the rack into your room and say, but God, I thought you told me to go love people. They don't even love me back. No, Roy, that's why I said, what good is it if you love those who only love you in return? Even the sinners do that. See, I didn't call you to judge whether your love was working by the response that you got from people. I called you to love people and let me worry about the response because one man sows and one man waters, but I bring the increase. All I've asked you to do is trust me and to obey me and trust that, trust that I'm more committed to people than you are. Why are you in your room complaining to me about them as, though, as if you're more concerned about them than I am? But God, I did what you asked me to do and they won't listen to me. Roy, do you think that you care more about their salvation than I do? I actually had him ask me that one time and shut my mouth. <laughs> it's, it's, it's always kind when he rebukes us, right? It's always gentle. It's always out of love. It's never, that's because you're an idiot. It's always just these little gentle things that he says to us that, that bring us into truth and cause us to stand there and realize that what I was just saying makes absolutely no sense in the light of what he's done for me and who he's called me to be. My complaint seems so petty. My attitude's so far off. And he just gently shows it to me and allows me to, to process through that. 
He says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world. Paul says this in, in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters because then you would have to go out of the world. Paul was saying, listen, he must have wrote them a letter before 1 Corinthians, right? Because he says, I said to you in my letter. And then he says, I didn't say to you when I, when, when I said not to have anything to do with it. I wasn't talking about the people in the world that live that way. It shouldn't shock us when people that don't know Jesus live this way. It shouldn't offend us and it shouldn't make us cut off our friendships and say, well, if that's how you're going to be, I can't have anything to do with you. And apparently that's what the church at Corinth was doing. They were going around looking at the world and saying, sinner, 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 sinner. I can't have anything to do with you, 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 or you. And Paul gets word of this and says, oh man, they, they totally misunderstood what I was talking about. When I said that, I was talking about, and then he goes on and explains, any so-called brother, in fact, so, the, who would, who's doing these things. So what that meant was somebody who was actually in the church claiming to be a born-again new creation in Christ, but their life, the fruit of their life, was showing that they hadn't given their heart to Jesus and they were still living the way that they lived before they were born again. Now they're living inside of the assembly of God, inside of the family of faith, and receiving all the benefits of living inside the family while allowing sin to be present inside the family. He said, it was those that I told you not to have anything to do with. Because what you're doing is you're allowing them to live in a way that doesn't cause them to feel the consequence of their action because they're out living in sin, but yet they're living inside of the blessing and safety and protection and provision of the church. So remove them outside of that so that they can actually feel the consequence of what they're doing and though their flesh be destroyed, in other words, and though life may get really hard, their soul will be saved because they'll come to an understanding that these decisions that I'm making, that this sinful lifestyle that I'm living in has a consequence, has repercussion in my life and I don't like that and the pain becomes too great to continue to living that way and then you come to the place of really wanting to repent and actually become a new creation, then welcome them back into the assembly. But what they did was they said, well, well, you're bad and you're bad and you're bad and you're bad. And they started labeling people by what the people had done wrong. And these people didn't know God. They didn't know Jesus. They hadn't been born again. They needed the gospel. They didn't need the church to retreat from them. They needed the church to run to them. And so, Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit OutreachChurch.net for downloads and service information. Paul says, listen, when I wrote that to you, I wasn't talking about that. For then you would have to go out of the world. In other words, in the only way you're going to not be around people like that is if you remove yourself from the world. But yet you're sent into the world to be salt and to be light. And if you remove yourself from the world, who's left to bring the gospel? Who's left to live a life that is worth following? Who's left to stand in front of the church the way Paul didn't say, follow me as I follow Christ? If you guys all remove yourself from the world and leave them to themselves... How are they going to hear the gospel? How are they going to see a better way of living? How are they going to know the love of Christ and the change that it can bring to their lives? Don't do that. Don't remove yourself. The idea that we're supposed to separate ourselves from the people of this world is crazy. The idea that we're supposed to live in this world but not become defiled by it is godly. Pure religion in the sight of God is this, that you'd look after the widows and orphans and that you would live in the world and not be defiled by it. That you would live in this world but not be defiled by it. In other words, that you're able to walk into the world, walk around people who are living completely godless. Listen, that's what we should expect from people who don't know Him. Don't be shocked by their behavior. You know what you were like before you were born again. Why do you act surprised when people act just like you did? Why do you get offended when they do the same things that you were doing? Sometimes even after you're born again. 
I mean, none of you guys, but I've heard there are people who get born again. I've heard that there are people who, once they're born again, still sometimes slip into old patterns of behavior, old ways of living, and that still sometimes their flesh rises up and gets the best of them, and they act as though they don't know God. I've heard that there are people like that in the world. If you find them, you bring them to me, and we'll have a word with them. None of you guys were on Woodruff Road by Dick's Sporting Goods yesterday at 4 o'clock, were you? See, the halo is just disappearing. Pretty soon, you guys, the, the halo will be completely gone. You guys will realize that God wants to use every single one of us, that it's not just certain people who are perfect that God wants to use. You've been perfected by Jesus in you, but I promise you, if the, if the, if the, the standard for who can be used by God was perfection, you'd have to eliminate most of the people that God ever used in the Word. In fact, He seems to have a thing for people who understand that they have screwed up badly. Because sometimes maybe you come to the end of yourself a little bit faster. And you realize that there's nothing good in me. And I need you. I need a Savior. So the battlefield is the world, right? If we remove ourselves, then how on earth can we ever fight the enemy anywhere but in our own lives? Remember David had a covenant, an understanding of covenant with God. It was as good or greater than anyone's in the Old Testament. We, we see through his life the understanding he had for covenant by the covenant that he made with Jonathan. And the way that he acted so many times, he talked about being in Christ or being in God and God being in him. And, and he understood that he had this understanding of God's heart towards him and his heart towards God that was so far ahead of where most people in the Old Testament did. I mean, think about it. Like, he could teach us th- today a lot of things like, and I've, I know I've said this before, but we, we've got to get this, that, that we feel like sometimes we, we act like the presence of God is this mythical thing that we chase. And we put it out there like it's this elusive thing and, you know, we're just, we're, we're pursuing His presence and, 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 oh, what do we got to do and what do we have to, to say and what do we have to sing to make us feel the presence of God? And David said back then that His presence would never leave him, that His presence actually pursued him. David understood that the presence of God was in pursuit of him. If I went to the highest height, there you would be. If I went to the depths of Sheol and made my bed, there you would be also. Where could I go to escape your presence? Not where could I go to find your presence. Where could I go? that I could escape your presence. In other words, your presence is always with me. You're all around me. It's my awareness that ebbs and flows. And so sometimes we say, wow, the presence of God was really strong. No, your awareness of the presence of God was really strong because He doesn't come and go in percentages. He's not more here than there. He's all-encompassing. He fills the earth. His glory fills the earth. He's everywhere you go. He's promised to never leave you or forsake you. He can't be somewhere without His presence being there. It's not as if they're separate promises that I'll never leave you or forsake you, but my presence, you'll have to go run and try to find that. And David understood that. David understood the presence of God pursued him, that nowhere he could go would he be able to hide from it. And so David says in Psalm 23, 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. 
Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. David says, look, even though I'm in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death, right? Even though all around me I can see the enemy, all around me there's attack, even though it's dark, even though it looks bad, even though in the natural my circumstances aren't great, I don't fear when I go through there. Remember the, 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 the demands of the covenant were to trust and obey. He would protect and provide. So do not fear. I trust you. Even though when I look around me, there's walls around me of death and everywhere I look, things look bad and it's gloomy and I'm getting reports from people that Saul is trying to kill me. And everywhere I go, there's another army looking for me and I don't know who to trust because the next person I talk to could be working for the king and could be coming to to tell the king where I am and he could send people to kill me. Even though I walk through this, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Because I understand that me and you are in covenant, God. And I understand that where I go, you go. And where you go, I go. That it's not this thing where you brought me someplace and then left me on my own. That even when I find myself in what looks like a bad situation, I'm not going to fear because I understand you're here. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Your rod is your weapon that's in your hand and I understand that you've promised to protect me. And if you're standing there with a stick in your hand, God, then I don't fear because I know the stick's not for me. It's for the enemy when they would try to attack me. And your staff, it comforts me. Why? Because your staff is what you would lead the sheep with. And so I understand that I am where I am because of your leading, God. And that if you led me me here you didn't lead me here to die and i know that i'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death in other words i know this isn't where i stay i know this isn't where the story ends and so as i'm walking through i won't fear because you're with me because i know that your promise to protect me and provide for me has followed me even into the valley of the shadow of death because my ability to be okay is not based on my circumstances it's not based on whether or not people are doing the right thing it's not based on whether or not the enemy is trying to attack Because I promise you, attack's coming. That's not to be doom and gloom. That's so that when it comes, you're not surprised by it, you're not caught off guard by it, and you don't get fearful. It's to say, oh, it's you. It's just you when the enemy comes and huffs and puffs and threatens to blow the house down. And you understand that every attack that is formed against you won't prosper. So David says that, right? And then he says this, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He understands that God's plan for providing for David to sit at the table and experience his goodness isn't delayed by what he's going through. Why doesn't he say, you prepare a table for me on the other side of the wilderness, on the other side of the valley of death, that you prepare once the enemy is gone? Because he understands God has no intention of the enemy's presence determining whether or not he can put his goodness on display in our lives and invite us to sit at his table and be okay. In the presence of my enemies, you prepare a table for me. You invite me to come and sit in your presence and enjoy your goodness while the enemy is all around me. Why? Because he never intended to take you out of the world. He intended to take the world out of you. And he is not bothered in one bit by the attack of the enemy in your life. And it has no ability to determine whether or not you're okay, whether or not you can enjoy his goodness, whether or not you can be filled with joy. It's not a delayed thing. It's not, well, once the attack ends, then I'll be happy. Once the attack ends, then I'll find my joy. Once this is over, once I pass through. No, David understands that even while everything going on around me looks bad and it's the valley of the shadow of death. In other words, there's death looming over his head. The threat of death was a constant in his life. Everywhere he turned, there was the threat of being killed by a jealous king who wasn't even the king anymore, who wasn't even anointed to lead anymore. 
He says, in the presence of my enemies, you prepare a table for me. Why? Because your ability to enjoy God and your ability to be happy and your ability to find His peace and His strength and enjoy His presence has nothing to do with what's going on around you and has everything to do with His plan for you to do so. He never wants you to stop and say, well, once this is over, then I'll enjoy God. John 17, these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy and my joy may be made full in themselves. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world. I told these things to them while they're in the world, the place that they're going to be hated so that they would have joy. Why? Because being hated by the world has nothing to do with whether or not you're okay or you can experience the joy of the Lord. In fact, you can get to a place where when the world comes against you, it causes you to be even more joyful and rejoice because you understand that if you weren't doing anything to impact the kingdom of hell, if you weren't doing anything that, that threatened the enemy, he would be happy to leave you alone and let you live your life and go on doing what you've been doing and not affecting anyone's life. And you can actually live to a place where when you're attacked for things, you can actually find joy in it. Not because you're being attacked, but because you understand the reason why you're being attacked. Because you've made yourself a threat to the enemy and he's decided that he's going to try and attack you. And it's amazing the ability that that has for you to actually be able to fight. And not with natural weapons, not with weapons of this world, but with the joy and the peace that he gives and fight off the attack of the enemy. We had, um, since, since pastoring this church, occasionally, sometimes more than occasionally, I hear crazy stories about stuff that's gone on at our church, you know, love about our church, what we believe, or what we do. And last two weeks ago, I heard two really, really crazy ones. They had, I mean, just some of them you can see where someone may have construed something you've said and misinterpreted it and taken it out of context, you know. And, and so you can sometimes understand, but then sometimes you hear them and they're just so outrageous you just laugh, right? And, and so apparently one time I was, people were hitting people on the head with flaming sticks. So... Yeah, that's why it smells like burnt hair in here. If anyone knows how to get rid of that smell, let us know. But, but, but here's the thing, right? You hear these things and it could cause you to be angry. And, and there was a time in my life where I would have wanted to chase down the rumor and find out who started it and set them straight and make sure they knew that and defend this church and defend myself and, and defend and defend and do all these things and be offended by what they said and, and get alone and ask God, why would people do this? How could they say this? What do you, why would you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And instead I just started laughing and I got a big smile on my face and I said, woe to you when all men speak well of you for this is how their fathers treated the false prophets of old. See, Jesus knew people were going to say things about you that weren't true. So he said, don't be afraid and don't be sorry when people say things about you that aren't true. Be afraid when everybody says good things about you and nobody has anything bad to say about you. Because the only way you can get to that place is by saying things that aren't true. That's how their fathers treated the false prophets who told them only what they wanted to hear, who weren't a threat to the kingdom of the enemy because the word they were speaking wasn't true. It wasn't from God's mouth. It wasn't a true prophecy. It was a false prophecy. And the enemy was happy to leave them alone and let people sit and listen to that. So rather than attacking with the weapons of the world, right, and wanting to go and find people and, and set them straight and, and chew them out and, or maybe even do worse than that. There was a time in my life where people talking badly about me would cause me to want to do things with my fists, right? Rather than that, it's the weapons of our warfare that God's given us. It's the ability that even in the presence of my enemies, even in the presence of people who would love to destroy the image of this church and keep people from coming here and see us do absolutely nothing because nobody would come here, even in the presence of that, God prepares a table for me and says, Roy, come 
sit down. Come enjoy. Be, be, be still. Be in my presence. It's okay. Your ability to be okay has nothing to do with whether or not what people say about you is true. It has everything to do with the fact that what you say is true. And as long as you're speaking my word truthfully, every attack that comes against you, you can just laugh and shake it off and realize that I saw these things coming a long time ago. And I warned you. Don't be afraid when people say things about you that aren't true. Be afraid when everyone has nothing but good things to say about you. Over and over again, the promise is that we will face trials, tests, and persecution. John 16, 33. These things I've spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. Don't be afraid, because I have overcome the world, and you're in me. See, that's where we have to understand covenant, that everything Christ overcame, we are in Him, and we have overcome through Him. That the attack of the enemy that comes against you, the tribulation that comes against you, your flesh trying to rise up against you, that Jesus already destroyed all of that. Because he promised that your enemies will be my enemies and the things that war against you, I'll war against. And the people that would try to defeat you and the things that would try and defeat you, I'll defeat them. 1 Peter 1.6, in this greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The testing is always against our faith, right? It's always against this. Do I really believe that I am who God says that I am and that he is and will be who he said he is and will be for me? It's always, every attack that is against you is to try to shake your faith that you are who God said that you are and that He is and will be who He said He is and who He will be for you. Everything that comes against you is set up to try to get you to doubt that, to try to get you to question that, to try to get you to, because if you don't believe that, then you'll react out of something other than who you really are. You start making decisions out of fear. You start making decisions based on other things, worldly wisdom, logic, reasoning, and all those things because you don't believe that you are who God said that you are. So you don't believe that you have the ability to act the way God said that you can act. If he can get you to doubt that, it's why when Jesus is tempted by the enemy, the first words that he hears, he said, God says from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The very next words that Jesus Christ would hear would be the enemy coming and saying, if you are the son of God. Why? Because he understood if I can get him to question who he is, I can get him to act like somebody that he's not. And I, I promise you, if he thought that was the way to get Jesus, he thinks that's the way to get you. And everything that happens in your life is set up to try to shake your faith and try to shake what you believe. And try to shake your confidence that you are who God says that you are. And that He is who He says He is. If He can get you to do that, He can get you to act outside of the nature and who you truly are. The greatest enemies to the ability to keep our faith are these, I believe. Our old nature, guilt, shame, and condemnation. Those are the enemies that we have against us that were in this world. And Jesus promised that I will fight those that would come against you, that things that try to rise up against you, I will destroy. And he's asked us to do the same for him. And so these are the enemies of our faith, I believe, because when they're present, it's hard for us to believe the promises that God has for us. And so we'll disqualify ourselves from the things that God said about us and for us. Well, actually, because the enemy can't disqualify you, right? Because the blood of Jesus was shed for you, for every sin that you would commit, every sin that you have committed, every sin that you will commit, the blood of Jesus was shed to cover that. It's not as if Jesus is going to come and die on a cross the next time that you sin. The punishment was taken and the payment was made once for all. 
And so he understands that he can't disqualify you from the promises of the blessing of God. So he'll try to get you to disqualify yourself. To try to get you to, in your own mind, think there's no way that God could really think that about me. There's no way that I'm worthy to receive that. There's no way that I can really live that way because of X, Y, and Z. And so we allow the, the, the enemy to speak to us about who we are and disqualify us. Our old nature was at odds with God, right? And it opposed the life that we're called to live. Guilt says, I can't or I haven't been forgiven. Condemnation says, I deserve to be judged for the things that I've done wrong where I've missed the mark. And shame says, the things that I've done wrong define who I am. But the things and the mistakes that I've made, the things that I've done wrong, that they define who I am. So Ephesians 4.22, dealing with the old nature. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Jesus came and gave up his life so that we could give up our life and take his on. That was the exchange that we talked about in the exchange of coats. Jesus came and there was an enemy that was against you and it was your old nature. It was when you were in your old self, when you were of the old nature that was within you, you were a slave to sin. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, we're no longer slaves to sin, but now slaves to righteousness. In other words, you the thing the very thing inside of you that was telling you what to do was sin and so it took an act of rebellion for you to live outside of that nature it actually took rebellion for you to live outside of sin now he says put off the old self and put on the new self which is christ which is made in the image of righteousness and holiness so now it takes an act of rebellion for you to sin Because the new nature that's inside of you is the very nature of God, the very nature of Christ. Remember, we were circumcised, but not with the circumcision of human hands, but of the Holy Spirit, with the cutting away of the flesh from our hearts. Something changed. You have a new nature. You're no longer a slave to sin. Now it says we are slaves to righteousness. Say that. I am a slave to righteousness. In other words, my master is righteousness. Now what demands that I do things is righteousness, it's holiness, it's purity. And I have to actually full on rebel against my master to do something that I used to be so natural for me to do. Everything changed when Jesus came and died and when you accepted him into your life. You went from being a slave of sin who could do no right outside of rebellion to a slave to righteousness who can do no wrong outside of rebellion. Isn't that amazing? Because he never intended for this life to be a constant struggle where you're always wanting to do the things that you shouldn't and always not doing the things that you know that you should. If you're living in Romans 7, keep reading. Get to Romans 8 and start reading about the law of life in the Spirit, which is the life that we're called to. So guilt... So Jesus takes care of that, right? The old nature, the old self that you were. He says, cast it aside and take on the new. In other words, the only reason you're still walking around acting like your old self is because you're still holding on to it. Cast it aside. I've already dealt with it. I've already made the new that's ready for you to put on. All you have to do is let go of who you were and take on who you can become. Take on who I am. It's our, he says to you, you lay aside the old self. In other words, he's not going to come and tell you, okay, from now on, you can never ever do this stuff again. He gives you a free choice. He gives you a free will. And if you're still walking around being mastered and dominated by sin, then maybe it's time to let go of the old self and take on the new self. And it's not his fault. Because he's already made the way. 
you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of the sea and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which is the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and the holiness of truth. That's not thus saith Roy. That's the word. See, you had an enemy and it was your old self. It was, the, it was your flesh. It was the old nature that ruled within you. And so Jesus came and said, anything that's an enemy to you, I'll make an enemy to me because we're in covenant together because we've exchanged belts. And so now I hate the thing that would come against you. And so he comes and he destroys that and makes a way for us to live outside of that. Guilt makes us feel as if we haven't been forgiven for the things that we've done wrong, which makes us unworthy, feel like we're unworthy to receive his best and makes us in our own minds disqualify ourselves because we think that he still views us based on those mistakes. This is one of the biggest enemies that we have to living the life that Jesus called us to live. And so in Colossians 2.13, the word says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He's destroyed the guilt because of the sin of your past, the certificate of debt, which consisted of decrees against you. In other words, there was this certificate of debt that spoke out and made charge against you and said, you have done this and you have done this and you have done this and you must pay the price for it. Sacrifice has to be made. Atonement has to be made. There can be no wrongdoing without something dying, without something being made right, without some action on our part to get rid of it. And and that was what decreed against us and then Jesus comes and that decree is nailed to the cross and payment is made in full. And so we don't have to act and feel like we are not being forgiven or not worthy of being forgiven for the sins that we've committed. And when you feel guilty, you'll disqualify yourself because you feel like, well, I know that, that the Word says that, but I've done this, but I've done that. And so in our own minds, we'll disqualify ourselves of being worthy to receive God's best for us and we'll not allow ourselves to live in joy because we think that the things that we've done wrong keep us from it. And we'll spend a lot of our lives feeling miserable for things that God's already forgiven, that we're already nailed to the cross because we feel like that's who we are and that's what we deserve. Condemnation. Condemnation will keep us from believing that we deserve His promises because we feel like even if we have been forgiven, we still deserve to be dealt with and punished for the things that we've done wrong. See, I feel like, well, maybe he forgave me, but I still have to pay the debt. I still deserve to be punished for it. I still did the the crime, so now I have to do the time. I, I still know the things that I've done wrong, and so I can't expect that God would bless me. I can't expect that his promise would be for me, because I know the things that I've done wrong in the past, and maybe he's forgiven them, but I don't know that he's forgotten them, and some of that might disqualify me. I, I've been divorced, so I could never, ever be someone who holds a position in a church, or or, or any of the, the pet sins that it seems like we have out there, right? I struggled with this so I can never be that. I used to do this so I could never do this. And we will disqualify ourselves in our minds because of things that we've done wrong because we feel like we deserve punishment because it's always in our nature to want to make up for the things that we've done wrong. And so Jesus comes and says, condemnation will be an enemy against you that will fight against you all of your life so I'm going to take care of it for you. And Romans 8 says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Through Jesus, all the requirement of the law, all the condemnation, all the penalty that should be paid was paid once for you and for me and for every person that would ever live because God so loved the world, He sent His only Son. That is good news. That's the gospel. That's good news. See, Jesus understood that we would feel condemnation for the things that we've done. And now don't mix up condemnation and conviction because they both kind of sound similar. Right? Conviction is the Holy Spirit coming and condemnation is the voice of the enemy accusing. And the only difference between them is this, is that conviction comes and says, look at what you've done. That's who you are. That's what condemnation says. Condemnation says, look at what you've done. That's who you are. But conviction comes and says, look at who you are. Why would you do that? That's not who you are anymore. Condemnation says, because you've done this, you are this. Conviction says, because you are this, don't do that. And they sound a lot alike because they're both talking about things that we've done, but one is through the the lens of, that's no longer who you are, so stop doing that thing that you're doing. The other one is, is because you've done what you've done, this is who you are. And you'll feel condemned and you'll label yourself and you'll judge yourself as unworthy to receive from God and unworthy to be able to enjoy His presence, His goodness, His joy, and the plan that He has for your life. And because the enemy can't disqualify you himself, he'll try to get you to disqualify yourself in your own mind. How many people are living lives far below where God intends for them to live because they feel like they're not worthy to live any better because of things that they've done wrong in the past? So Jesus comes gives his life and pays the penalty for every bit of it and says there's now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Woman, where are your accusers? If they don't condemn you, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And stand before him and the enemy is trying to accuse you and he looks at you and says... I've paid the price for all of that. And slowly, one by one, the accusers start walking away. And eventually, when they're all gone, he looks at you and says, Roy, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Shame. Shame says it's still who I am. Shame says, because of what I've done, this is who I am. Because of what I've done, it's still who I am. And yeah, I may have been forgiven, and yeah, I might not have to pay the penalty, but it's still who I am. That's why I can't stand programs that try to get people free from addiction, that the first thing they tell them is that you're an addict, and you'll always be an addict for the rest of your life. So you start off your meeting saying, hi, my name is Roy, and I'm an alcoholic. No, you're not an alcoholic. If God intended for you to be an alcoholic, He would have called you one. You may be acting like an alcoholic and you may have spent a time in your life where you were an alcoholic, but if you're born again, that's no longer who you are because your identity is not tied up in what you've done wrong. It's tied up in what Jesus has done right. And it's no longer who you are, so much so that Paul could stand in front of the very church that he persecuted and say, we who have wronged no one. He understood that who he is is not based on what he's done or what he was, that he's a new creation in Christ so much so that he stands in front of the very church that he persecuted, that he dragged off to be killed, and he says, we who have wronged no one. And in the church today, we'd probably start throwing stones at him. And what do you mean you've wronged no one? How can you say that? Don't you remember what you did to Aunt Ethel? 
Don't you remember what you did to my dad or to my brother or to my sister? Don't you remember the screams of the people as you dragged them off to be killed, as you dragged them off to be tortured for sport? Don't you remember that? How could you stand in front of the church and say, we who have wronged no one, because Paul didn't have any shame because he understood who I am has nothing to do with what I've done and everything to do with who he says that I am and what he did right. Shame will keep you from living the life that God's called you to live because you'll disqualify yourself and say, I'm not worthy to because I did this and that's who I am. So people will tell you, well, you know, that's all well and good, but you've got to remember something. That's still who you are and you've got to make war against that every single day. Why? The enemy's been defeated. My Bible says that no weapon formed against me will prosper. I would say that an addiction trying to make its way back into my life is a weapon that's formed against me. And if I believe the Word of God, it has no chance in prospering as long as I trust Him, obey Him, and allow Him to lead me. And I walk by the Holy Spirit who will lead me and guide me into all truth. Why would I label myself by a mistake that I've made if He doesn't? When I stand before God, He's not going to call me an alcoholic. Why would I call myself one? When I stand before God, He's not going to call me a drug addict, an abuser. He's not going to call me a rageaholic or any of the terms that we've taken on and we've labeled ourselves by because of past mistakes. Why would I call myself something that He wouldn't? As if my opinion of me is more important. And it sounds so humble, right? And we, we talked about this before. It sounds so humble to say, well, I'm just this and I'm just that and call myself names and call myself things and degrade myself and talk about how horrible I am. But the truth of the matter is, is if I couldn't find it coming from his mouth, when I stand before him on judgment day, perfect, holy, and blameless, like the Bible says that I will, in Christ, if it would sound weird for him to say that to me on that day, it should sound weird for me to say that about myself now. Because it's not as if something changes when I die. Death is not my Savior. Jesus Christ is. And so nothing changes from who I am now when I I die. It's not as if then I pass through the walls of blood and I'm covered by His righteousness. It says that when I die here on earth, when the old me dies and I become born again a new creation in Christ, I'm covered with His righteousness because He became sin who knew no sin so that I could become the righteousness of God in Christ. He didn't act sinful so that I could act righteous. He became sin so that I could become righteous. There's a big difference in the two. So if I believe that when I stand before Him on that day, that I stand there perfect and covered by the blood of Jesus, and I won't be accused and I won't be labeled by any of the things that I've labeled myself on earth, then I probably should humble myself and exalt His opinion above my own. And don't think it's humility to call yourself things that God wouldn't call you. It's actually the worst form of pride because what you're saying is, is God, I know that you wouldn't say this about me, but you don't know me the way I know me. And if you did, you'd change your mind. As if something that you've done is so horrible that God forgot about that one when he said that he would make you perfect and blameless, upright, holy, pure. If he wouldn't say it about you, you have no business saying it about yourself. Because when you call yourself that, what you say is, this is who I am, this is how I deserve to be treated, and you will settle for so much lower and so much less than what God has for you. It's so important that we see ourselves the way that He sees us. It's so important that we see others the way that He sees them. Shame will make us label our things, ourselves by the things we've done wrong and say, I don't deserve this because I am a... And now fill in the blank with your worst sin. I don't deserve because I'm A, because I have done. And fill in the blank with the worst thing that you've done. And that's what shame does to you. And Jesus came. 
It, said, it says in Ephesians 5.8, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. You were formerly darkness. I love how often the Bible uses past tense and present tense right next to each other to say who you were and who you have become. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light. Not you are in light, not you are covered by light, not you are able to act like the light, not you are any of those things. It says, but now you are light in the Lord. You are light in the Lord. You were darkness, now you are. When you became born again, a new creation in Christ, the darkness that you were passes away and a new creation stands there and you are light in the Lord. There can be no shame in that because there is no sin, there is no guilt, there is nothing but the fruit that's cons- that it says it consists of goodness, righteousness, and truth. You are light in the Lord which consists of goodness, righteousness, and truth. That's who you are. And that's how you deserve to be treated. And that's how God treats you and deals with you. And the enemy knows that if you believe this stuff, if you understand that there's no guilt because Jesus paid the price for your sin, that there's no condemnation because He became sin who knew no sin so that you could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And there's no condemnation in Christ because Christ is perfect, Christ is pure, Christ is holy. Understand that the only way you can stand, that an accusation can be made against you is if it could be made against Christ because you are now in Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. Is he took you from the kingdom of darkness and placed you into the kingdom of His Son whom He loved. We are now seated with Christ in heavenly places no longer I who lives, but Christ lives against me. Any accusation that sticks has to be able to stick against Jesus Christ because it's His righteousness that you're covered in, not your own. Our righteousness was filthy rags. Thank God you can get rid of those filthy rags and become the righteousness of God in Christ. I'm just going to close up with this and we're going to have to do part two next week, which is, so how do we fight now that He's fought this? The redemption that we have in Christ is so complete that we're now made joint heirs with Christ and we deserve everything that He deserved because He took everything that we deserved. Do you guys understand when we read these verses and when we talk this way why Paul would have to tell people, am I saying you can just go sin because there's grace? Heaven forbid. Because when you hear this stuff, you think, well, I can just do anything. The point of the matter is, is you actually can do anything that you want to do. But when you become born again and His Spirit lives inside of you, your wants start to change. And they start to line up with His wants. Your heart changes. You have a new nature. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're a slave to righteousness. You want to do the right thing and it hurts when you do the wrong thing. Those things that you used to be able to do without thinking twice about, now when you do them, it actually hurts and causes you pain because it's not who you are anymore. It's not the nature that's inside of you. You're still capable of doing it, but now it's an act of rebellion and it hurts because it's no longer your nature. It's no longer who you are. Jesus came and said, any enemy that's an enemy of yours is an enemy of mine and I'll take it on. And so he overcomes death, hell, and the devil. Death loses its grip. It loses its sting because it's no longer permanent. It's just that leaving this world and entering into the next. We don't fear death because to live is Christ and to die is gain. And yeah, we're sad when people die and when people leave this earth, but the truth of the matter is they're not. Because they're standing in the presence of the one who loved them so much that he gave his son for them. They're reunited with all the ones who've gone before. They're standing in the presence of God in his holiness and in his beauty. And what they're seeing is causing them to open their mouths and worship in an unending stream of worship. 
they see why the angels can circle the throne 24 hours a day and say nothing but holy, 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 holy. They're seeing what we only see in part. They're experiencing what we believe. They're not sad. I'm sure we are. I'm sure it hurts. The truth of the matter is, is everything that was an enemy of ours, Jesus Christ came and dominated, destroyed, made a spectacle of it, says. Made a public display of it on the cross. Then he said, as the Father sent me into the world, so I send you. What's our part in this? What do we fight with? How do we fight? And who do we fight? We're going to talk about that next, next week because it should just be way too long. If while I'm saying these things, if while we're talking about the old nature, if while we're talking about guilt, while we're talking about shame, while we're talking about condemnation, if that does something in you and you realize, you know what, there's still some of that in my life. There's some guilt. There's some shame. There's some condemnation. I still kind of think of myself based on my mistakes. I, 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 I still feel like maybe I deserve less than God's best because I screwed up worse than other people have screwed up. I feel, still feel like maybe I haven't been or couldn't be forgiven for some of the things that I've done wrong. Or maybe I've been forgiven, but He's forgiven me, but He hasn't forgotten about it. And He still kind of sees me as that person, even though He's not going to send me to hell for it. If there's any of that feeling in you of any of those things, would you just raise your hand right where you are? We, we, yeah, it's, it, listen, it, it's okay. Uh, trust me, if you're feeling any of that, there's hands. Just lift your hands up where you are and, 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 and stay right there. It's okay. We're not going to call you up front or anything like that. If you're still da- struggling with any of that, what we want to do is we want the church to gather around you. We want to lay our hands on you, which the Bible calls a basic of the faith. And we want to pray for you and speak His truth over you. So go ahead. If you're struggling with that, would you just raise your hand up right where you are so that someone can see and some people can gather around you. Church, look around and let's be the church right now. And let's lay our hands on those people who are struggling with this and let's pray for them and let's speak the truth of God's Word over them which sets them free. You've been given a sword and it's the sword of His Word. And when you speak truth into people's lives, it breaks the lie of the enemy. That they are loved beyond their ability to even understand. That no weapon formed against them will prosper. That God is not dealing with them based on their past sins. He's dealing with them based on the obedience and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That they are not the mistakes that they've made. That they are who God says that they are and who He created them to be. Because He has final say. So church, yeah, just everyone, just if you can't gather around people, just extend your hands towards them and let's pray for them. The fact that you have regret is only because you're a changed person, because you've been transformed, because you're not the person who did those things anymore. And if you knew then what you know now, you would have never done the things that you did then. And you'll never be dealt with because you're not that person anymore. All things have passed away, and behold, everything has become new. The very fact that you regret the things that you did show that there's transformation taking place in your life and that you're not the person that you once were who could do those things and not think twice about it. It's because your life's being changed by the gospel because there's something inside that's different. It's because you're being transformed into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. It's because you can't anymore do the things that you did and be okay with it because you understand who you are. So God, I thank You so much for Your your Word to us, God. I thank You that, that You sent Jesus, that He made war on our behalf against the enemies of our soul, God, against, against the, our old nature, God, against who we were. God, against shame, against guilt, against condemnation. God, I thank You that You sent Jesus and that He became an enemy to our enemies and that He defeated them all. God, I ask that we would walk in this freedom, God, that we would enjoy, that we would know that even while the the enemy is around us, God, that it has nothing to do with our ability to be able to enjoy You and Your presence because in the presence of our enemies, You prepare a table for us. I thank You for that, God. 
I ask that you would just continue to speak to our hearts throughout this week about who we are in you. God, that we would be able to believe and that we would never disqualify ourselves from believing that we can receive all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, we, we love you guys so much. We're so thankful that you came. Today was Family Sunday, if you're wondering why all the kids were in here. Um, every fifth Sunday, we have all the kids in church so that all the children's workers and their families can be in here together and all of our kids can be in church with us together. Uh, next week, we'll have our children's uh, churches back open. You'll be able to bring your kids in for that. Um, but thank you guys for, for coming. We love you. Um, we really do pray that, that what, what God's doing in our hearts on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights when we gather and when we gather to worship with each other and on Thursdays and, and throughout the week, that it's actually transforming us and changing how we live our lives during the week every single day. That it's not just a mountaintop experience on Sunday and we need another dose the next Sunday. That it's actually transforming our lives and it's becoming who we are, not something that we do. And so we're thankful for that. We're so proud to call you guys our family, to call you guys our friends. And um, we just, we can't wait to see what God has in store for each and every one of us as we begin to grow into and become more and more the people he created us to be. And you look more and more like Jesus. You guys look a lot like Jesus. When I see the, I'm serious. When I see the church willing to gather around people, lay hands on them and speak truth to them who are struggling right where they are without any judgment in their eyes, without any condemnation, with nothing but tears of brokenness because of the love we have for each other. That's beautiful. And that looks a lot like Jesus. I'm thankful for that for you guys. Um, we are going to be helping the, the family. Um, uh, the person who died is, is part of my wife and my mother-in-law's family. And, and they asked if our church would be willing to help another church uh, for the Tuesday night visitation food that they're doing. And so we want to come around and support this family. Um, Gladys going to be heading that up. She's going to be up here up front. If you want to be involved in that, it doesn't have to be a huge involvement. If you just make a little tray of some kind of snacks, she's going to have a menu and tell you how you can be part of that. But it's part of, it's a way that our church can bless somebody that doesn't even know us and know that because we love them, because we care about them, that we would go to this measure and they're going to see people that they don't even know come and love them enough to serve them and lay down their life for them. And I think that speaks volumes to people. Because everyone expects it from people they know and love, but nobody's ready for the kindness of a stranger. It catches people off guard and it changes them. So if you want to be involved in helping out with that, big or small, just come see Gladys. Stand up real quick. Yeah, she'll be right here and, and you can come talk to her and get all the details from her.